Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello, Steve. How are you, Ben? Very well. Uh, very well, I think. I don't know. Yeah, conv- I'm convinced. <laughs> the problem is we just caught up before we pressed record. So the introductory conversation, we could either just rehash the conversation we just had before that the audience hasn't heard, or we can just sort of go straight into the podcast. I'd opt for the latter. Should we talk? Should we talk about something we can both relate to? Should we talk about animation for like for too long? Yes, as long as it's for too long. <laughs> well, who do we have on this episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast? Why don't you tell me? <laughs> I'm asking you. Oh man. Okay. Well, I'm, it's division of labour here. Oh, division of labour. I'd like rather be one of these fat cats that sit back and let somebody else do it. Never going to happen. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> You're not fat enough. <laughs> to answer your question, Ben, and continuing our kind of line of uh, fantastic uh, short directors, we've got an interview with Eamon O'Neill, the director of I'm Fine Thanks, and uh, he's recently released Left Online. It's an absolutely fantastic film. So we're going to get some, some insight from him. We've also got an interview with Tim Searle, the director of Warren United, a new uh, UK animated sitcom, which is on ITV4 now. So we're going to hear a little bit more about that. It's another month of fascinating guests, fascinating insight, and me and you just talking a load of rubbish. Well, what's been going on, Stephen, in the animation world? Here we are again. We've come together to bring insight and developments, etc., to the world. Well, in the last podcast, we, we talked about the incredible sequel being announced, and uh, Disney, on the hot on the heels of that, I suppose you'd say, uh, or lukewarm, with it being about a month old, have said, or rather the, their uh, composer has said, that a sequel to Wreck-It Ralph is in the, in the works, mm-hmm. which I think is quite interesting. Um, I, I really enjoyed Wreck-It Ralph. I think I enjoyed it more than Frozen. I think that's, uh, that's, that's safe to say. I found, I found it a very kind of endearing, uh, well-put-together film. Um, it was a bit of a risk for Disney because everyone's been saying for ages, you know, to create something that was along the kind of frozen formula. But then they, they got uh, Rich Moore uh, to develop Wreck-It Ralph and they just created something, uh, you know, a knockout success. I really enjoyed it. And to hear that they're making a sequel is, uh, is doubly exciting because it, it kind of... It kind of shows that Disney have got kind of a, a bit of faith in 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 creating something in, in something original and unique and and to create something exactly the same <laughs> to rehash it. Original, unique, and, and exactly, exactly the, the same. same. Yeah, Beautiful. that's, that's, that's poetry, my friend. <laughs> it's the winning formula <laughs> yet again. But the, 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 the reason I'm saying this is because Disney rarely do um, sequels and release them theatrically. Obviously, you've got. The DVD, director DVD or director video market where you have like every wonderful Disney film you can think of has got like three or four, you know, uh, films following it. Um, I think there's a sequel to Cinderella where, which involves time travel. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cinderella on the way back machine. It's, it's, it's your kids, Cinderella. We've got to do something about your kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, obviously the, the Aladdin sequels were, were kind of... Uh, Shite. 
<laughs> I was going to say I was going to say a part of my childhood, and not a part of uh, if not a part of your childhood, but, but your description fits as well, Ben. <laughs> it was a sh- part of my childhood. <laughs> but the thing is, when Disney, you know, hold on, get something good, they know how to milk it. You know, they basically created the home video market, so why not? You know, get some Australians and Parisians to to animate some some sequels to to the, like the Little Mermaid and, and Aladdin and the Lion King and 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 all the other films. And the concern is, I mean, they they know how to milk it, but their attitude towards quality control and consistency, they kind of know that they can slack off a bit at that stage too, and it's sort of a shame. They've got an inbuilt audience for a, a film sequel if it has identifiable characters. If it's from a you know if it's sprung from a beloved theatrically released feature, and so the laziness really kind of shines through mm-hmm. in all of those uh, straight to video sequels, and in a way that was quite obvious to us as kids. I actually sort of distinctly remember being presented with uh, the Return of Jafar, <laughs> and I think at like nine years old thinking to myself, that's a little on the nose. <laughs> or whatever the nine-year-old equivalent would be. Like, you know, oh, kind of an obvious way to go, but let's give it a let's give it a gander. Mm-hmm. And um, proceeded to watch a, a very odd take on Aladdin and a, a, a not didn't feel right. It didn't feel... It wasn't comfortable viewing. The genie was Homer now, for some reason, without any good donut jokes. The carpet looked like sh- <laughs> That was one of the cool things about the original movie is they had that swished CG carpet and it was just like drawn and the pattern was really rubbish. And yeah, there was a sort of sloppiness and a goofiness to the animation. Weirdly, though, had some nice musical moments. Not up to the standards, of course, of the original, but it wasn't like the music was like suddenly played on a Casio keyboard. They still had an orchestra. They still, you know, had proper session singers in and that kind of thing. Yeah, but it just, it didn't feel like a film it felt like well I guess essentially what it sort of was it was like a, a long pilot for a TV show it was a TV special yeah I think they did uh, they did an Aladdin TV series on the back of that didn't they yeah which uh, I, think, I think the only person that followed through on them all was uh, Gilbert Gottfried I think he was the only fella that did voice them all as Iago I imagine he's, he'd be quite sporting about that kind of thing yeah but of course that character only works if he has good lines and um I remember he, that character was in particular was sort of a shadow of, you know, what he was in the first film, which I thought was fantastic. I mm-hmm. thought it was really, really good. But you know, you're, the character's as strong as the dialogue that's written for it, and the in animation's case, the the quality of the visual performance. And so, when neither has been done with much thought or consideration, then yeah, it's not going to be a particularly satisfying watch. And I. You kind of rooted for Aladdin in the first one as an underdog, and you kind of didn't care about him in the second one. And yeah, and um, these are all very, very patched together snatches of memory I'm dealing with here. But did you know? Did you know the uh, Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer, did did uh, the genie in the second one, which you've already mentioned? But do you know why uh, Robin Williams didn't come back? I assume money. He he was kind of the first mm, quote unquote celebrity to do. Uh, a voice, which is very a very kind of subjective thing to say, because obviously Phil Harris, who voiced Baloo the Bear and stuff, he was a celebrity in his own time, and obviously you had uh, is it Louis Prima did um, King Louis? 
Very possibly. Yeah. Um, so you had them, you know, celebrities of the day, but it was a different kind of celebrity in the 90s, and, and Robin Williams was huge. And he said, I'll be, in, I'll be in the film so long as you don't have my face or the face of my character on more than 25% of the poster. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, the first poster was just a huge picture of the genie. And so the sequel, you got Dan Castellaneta. But to get him back for the third film, the, uh, was it the Prince of Thieves or the King of Thieves or something like that? The third one. We'll go with that. Disney sent him a Picasso. <laughs> really? As a, as a sorry. They're just like, you know, I can you just imagine there'd be like a ring on the door. <laughs> <laughs> like he opens the door and there's like a Picasso with like a ribbon around it or something like that. Disney Disney gave him a Picasso. Oh. That's fascinating, isn't it? The way that oh, that whole works. And, and then he was like, oh, well, a Picasso. Well, <laughs> that'll do. I'll, I'll voice the genie again. Yeah, that's from um, James B. Stewart's book, Disney War. It's a brilliant, fascinating book about the whole, um, the Eisner era, mm-hmm. you know, that the, uh, the, the, the kind of the Disney home sequels kind of belong to. Now, did they, in the long run, do you think that they felt it was worth giving him a Picasso for the performance he turned in in Aladdin <laughs> 3? Which I actually haven't seen, so I can't judge it. Well, I think you've just answered your own question there, Ben. You know, if it didn't even reach you, <laughs> it wasn't really worth it, was it? It's, I, I think it's more of a slight on Dan Castellaneta, really. <laughs> it's uh, fascinating, the whole Disney thing and, and Disney sequels, because the only real sequel that Disney have ever done is The Rescuers Down Under, mm-hmm. which again was a kind of Eisner-era um, sequel. It didn't do too well. And the only other character that has had sequels released theatrically is Winnie the Pooh. Uh-huh. So if they do do a, a Wreck-It Ralph sequel and Rich Moore's in the directing seat again, which I've got my fingers crossed for that one, you know, it could be something exciting, mm-hmm. you know, but it'll be exactly the same. But <laughs> Was the sequel to The Lion King straight to video? Yeah. Yeah. I think, what was it? Okay. Lion King Simba's Pride or something? How does the Lion King hold up? The Lion King sequels? Uh, no, the, the original. The original Lion King's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I want to give that one a watch at some point. It's one of those from that era where, where something special was going on at Disney. Hmm. Moira Kelly was in it. Yeah? <laughs> so I'm just looking at the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice poster. I remember that one. The original Lion King poster. Oh, they were like the kind of pastely chalky in the in the sky. You've got Simba's dad. Yeah, very nice. Uh, no hidden willies as far as I can tell. <laughs> it's always a positive in a Disney uh, promotional campaign. That was the uh, the Little Mermaid, wasn't it? Oh, I have another Lion King question. The Lion King 3D, which I, I saw things for a couple of years ago. They released it in the cinema in 3D, right? Yeah. How do they do that? I should know this, but what do they do to, to take a film that's been animated in 2D and make it stereoscopic? I have absolutely no idea. I think it's just simply a case of taking the, the original film and splitting it up so it's so it creates a depth of field uh, using, I don't know, some kind of some magical software. It's magic, man. It's, it's okay. magic. It's magic. magic. That'll do. Magic, yeah. <laughs> The only way I could sort of think of is if they kind of like actually sort of CG modeled the whole film and was able to sort of transplant that onto the original footage in a way that kind of bisected it. Mm-hmm. But that would that would be like making a whole remaking the entire film. 
Yeah. So unless I actually went into the uh, like original cell animation and just sort of composited it in a way so that they're on different planes, but then it would have that kind of two and a half D effect. There probably is an element of that, but uh, because Disney have a, a brilliant animation research library where they keep all the original frames and, and stuff, so there, there may well be that kind of, at least for the backgrounds or something, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I did see The Lion King on IMAX when they released it on IMAX years ago, a part of the uh, Bradford Animation Festival when you could get into the IMAX for free and they were showing The Lion King. Yeah. And it wasn't in 3D, it wasn't, you know, it was just flat on the screen, you know, huge it was but it was absolutely gorgeous because you know if you've got the kind of animator's eye like myself and yourself up you could see every stroke of the pen mm-hmm. and it was it was absolutely beautiful to to see the the shapes and everything on the screen and like i say the the brush strokes and the line of the pen and and everything it was just a you know joy to behold there's a bit where um simba's running back to the pride lands and it's in slow motion and you could see it all there, and it was just like a great kind of showcase of, of just great animation. Nice. Yeah, very nice. I found an interview with uh, a guy who worked on the 3D conversion. He explains it very clearly and succinctly. The really tough part is going into it shot by shot. We have a system that's part of our digital review playback system that also has the ability for us to annotate the shots what I would do is load up each shot from the film and, informed by how much depth I would want to give it overall, construct these depth markups. When you're doing those, you actually have to do it monoscopically. Almost the best way to do it is to close one eye and look at the shot and just imagine what it would look like in 3D. Fortunately, I've done enough CG stereoscopic films that I have the experience in setting cameras and knowing what kind of parallax I'm going to get from points in the scene. It's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> Me. That sounds hard. <laughs> Imagine going into that studio and it and it will be like the same experience as going into the the studio for them filming Popeye because they'll all be there with one eye closed and like you know one eye bulging open and all the faces all screwed up, looking just like a row of Popeyes. There was a talk in Annecy a few years ago. Ben Whitehill from Pixar came along and he was talking about how they did this kind of stereoscopics in in the Pixar films and how they tried to make it not in your face. I think some CG 3D films kind of pop it in your face immediately, uh, straight away. One of the first films I saw in, in stereoscopic was Monsters vs. Aliens, when kind of 3D was kind of getting its claws in. And there's a bit at the beginning where a guy's playing with a bat and ball, and he just does it into the audience, and you're watching thinking, oh, come on, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> we're not at a theme park, you don't have to kind of layer it on thick. But um, this guy from Pixar was telling the audience at, at Annecy basically how they only like to go in 10 pixels and they only like to come out 10 pixels to create a kind of a different type of depth hmm. and more of, a, more of an atmosphere as opposed to a kind of, oh, what's this coming out towards the screen or, you know, the kind of gimmicky yeah. uh, ridiculousness, uh, which, which was nice to think that they're, they're putting as much effort and as much kind of thought into, into, that, into that process as they are animation and they're not teaching treating it as a gimmick as such so a wonderful stereoscopic film uh when i was over in montreal it's a woman who made a film with the nfb uh called uh, the end of pinky and it's a little sort of film noir short story adaptation and it wouldn't w- the style wouldn't work for a feature film but uh, for a short form story idea it was really quite stunning 
and uh, variants, like enchanting, I suppose. It, the way this sort of city was constructed, this like floating city that was based sort of loosely on, you know, actual locations and streets in Montreal, but in this kind of sort of misty blizzard-type environment. And just really, really atmospheric, you know, and not gratuitously so. It, it just gave you a really nice feeling. The animation in and of itself was quite simple. Not bad, necessarily, but it was um, that was not where the bulk of the labor went into. So the animation was, I guess, that, again, sort of like flat planes, 2.5D, but as though they were kind of um, cardboard puppets, I guess, mm-hmm. in this very sort of uh, ethereal stage that had been set. And I think that that's a really great use of, of stereoscopy, stereoscopy, whatever the hell it's pronounced as, for short filmmaking. And I think that there's a, a potential future in that. You know, hmm. I think it's actually if you know a little bit about how the human eye works, you don't really need special elaborate software to make stereoscopic films. That you can composite in After Effects, you know, two shots and arrange the compositing in a way that you have two images that would combine to make a stereoscopic image. But you need to sort of know a little bit about you know which direction the eye needs to go and. You know how far apart they are, so you're not straining anyone's retina. Mm-hmm. And in CG, I'm sure there's there's got to be implemented in a lot of software now as an option. Yeah, those would be like dual camera, so, uh, well, two or three cameras, won't they, and, and render it out three times. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh well, I suppose I suppose that's the that's the way. I'm not by no means an expert. I would have thought it would only be two, but then if you have a third, which would be like the middle shot, that would probably be better actually. Because then you'd have yeah, something that, that sort of brings them both together. And 2D releases and things like that, maybe. I don't know. I thought we were just sort of postulating about, like, oh, maybe it's done this way. <laughs> Who knows? You know, they do something. It gets done, so... <laughs> they probably use computers, I don't know. Uh, what voices of authority we are. Uh, a, um, another, <laughs> another, you were speaking there about um, producers, and, and um, you've done a, a series of articles recently about uh, NFB producers. Well, not exactly. It's essentially that a lot of the output over the next few months is going to be sort of centered around NFB productions. But um, I think what we want to try and do on the website is more producer focuses in general. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be more of that coming, but it's not just going to be limited to Canada or the NFB. But uh, I did meet Michael Fukushima, who's who's just become the executive producer a couple months ago over there yeah and um there are a couple other nfb producers with lots of interesting things to say but predominantly i would say it's sort of director interviews yeah uh what's sort of going to be coming up and there was a plan and i think i mentioned it in the uh, january podcast to put together a sort of documentary video on the nfb from all this footage i have that's probably not going to happen now Mm -hmm. uh because they uh plans change and i think things that were sort of scheduled to be out in the world by the summer they're rethinking what the best sort of plan of action is so as far as video footage goes we're thinking things more episodic yeah um and uh, perhaps filmmaker specific so that's something that of course if you follow squiggly on twitter or just go to the website regularly or facebook and all the little avenues you can keep up to date with us um that's uh, that stuff will be shouting from the rooftops when it's available so exactly but speaking of producers and more kind of UK uh, line producers, uh, Sarah Smith, uh, the producer, how many times can I say producer, uh, of uh, Ardman's Arthur Christmas, 
has uh, set up a specific animation company for uh, just to create CG animation mm-hmm. in the UK. Uh, Locksmith Animation, uh, she's called it. She's teamed up with uh, is it Elizabeth Murdoch, uh, Rupert Murdoch's daughter, and Double Negative to uh, you know create a, a studio or pipeline just for um, CG features, uh, animated features. So that's uh, that could be interesting. I would hope so. Certainly, I, the ideas are always good, and then it's there's that sort of limbo between when something starts as a as a hopeful thing, and then seeing the actual sort of first results of it. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit early to um, you know to wonder what's what's going to you know come. They've they've only got a website with a logo on at the moment. They haven't really got much much else, but. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice promise, isn't it? Yeah. By features, do you get the vibe that it's sort of more on the independent end of the spectrum? Like the kind of thing that you would see at like a major festival, but not necessarily the kind of thing you'd see at the Odeon? Or do you think they're really going for like the kind of Ardman level? Oh, it's, it's hard to say. There's not much information really, is there? I mean, the only information is that they've, they've set up a company, but I can't imagine a company like Double Negative, a producer like Sarah Smith, and an investor like Elizabeth Murdoch or, or a media mogul like a Elizabeth Murdoch to want to do anything indie, mm-hmm. you know, which is a which is a, a bit of a shame. But hopefully they'll be able to... There's no stopping them using a kind of independent spirit and being a little bit uh, experimental or avant-garde with the, their approach to filmmaking or, uh, you know, to create something fresh and exciting as opposed to the same old same old but there are certain people that i would love to see make features i don't know if it's the kind of thing that they themselves would even want to do but when you think of um what don hertzfeld was able to do Mm -hmm. i think you can just about call his um his edited feature a feature because it's just over an hour i think Mm -hmm. so it's a little short but in that you know starting with a short film making a couple other short films and editing it together in a way that has this one very sort of satisfying narrative flow to it that is so indicative of of a potential future for feature filmmaking also when you think of what you know bill plimpton's been doing he's just finishing off his latest film now his sort of protege who he had on about a year ago uh signe bauman she's finished off her film she's it's going to be distributed soon i think i think there's no reason why that independent spirit and major studio resources can't sort of join forces in a way I don't really know enough about the whole process to really sort of outline how that would work necessarily, but I'm sort of thinking about, like, what's happening with television and um, uh, web video content and that kind of thing, the way ideas are being solicited, the way people are kind of coming together and collaborating. I think there's a change afoot, Hmm. and there's going to be value in, in doing things in a very traditional sense and having a very traditional approach to, you know, the running of a studio, but I think that the people who are really going to reap rewards and get noticed are the ones who are going to be more sort of progressive about their attitude about how they actually a get the films made and b get the films distributed and the you know the ways in which people can come together from all over the world working remotely working through crowdsourcing um crowdfunding obviously is now a big part of things nowadays well fingers crossed for that um you know that there is going to be something something fresh and new uh did you see the the article in the guardian about uh, it, it, it was by uh, Steve Rose in the Guardian. It's called "Repressed Brits, Evil Mexicans, 
Arab villains. Okay. Why are Hollywood? Why are Hollywood's animated movies full of racist stereotypes? <laughs> um, and you know, I don't, I don't disagree with his point. Really, um, he's he's got a, a an article here which sort of focuses around uh, Rio Two, the way that it, it kind of uses the, the stereotypes in in film. Uh, and obviously he refers to the uh, the crows in Dumbo, and um, rather interestingly he refers to the the bad guy in Despicable Me Two, which is a, a Mexican wrestler guy. Um, but I, I don't think he knew that that was originally going to be Al Pacino in that role uh, up until right at the last minute where uh, somebody else just did the did the voice. Uh-huh. He, he's kind of talking about about. Uh, the problems with uh, with that, with racism and, and stereotypes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I have no problem with what he's saying. I agree with what he's saying and everything. But but what I do have a problem with is if newspapers are so interested in progressing an art form, why are they more interested in highlighting the kind of mundane when they could really spend their time using column inches to promote something good? I mean. Wrinkles was released in the UK recently, or it's, or it's been given a, a theatrical release. They could really have, they could have wrote about that. They could wrote about an animation which approaches quite a challenging issue uh, and executes a, uh, a series of thoughts and, and, and contemplations on, on the problems that these characters face in, in a mature and, and, and unique kind of fashion. You know, but instead they're kind of churning up the same old, same old and, and, and saying... Oh look, the crows in Dumbo. You know, Dumbo was nineteen forty in the nineteen forties. Why are we still talking about it? I think it's yeah. because the news media are, are smart enough to know that the general public are kind of dumb. Uh, mm. This is way more prevalent in the American news media, but I've been noticing alarmingly British newspapers and news outlets are kind of following suit. There is a tremendous appeal in being sanctimonious and having a perceived moral high ground. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest instruments of this is I am so not racist because look how racist the person I'm talking about is. Again, it's way more sort of blatant when you sort of look at like comedians who get in trouble for using very, very well observed, very smart racial humor that makes incredibly deep sociopolitical points, but because they use certain terminologies, uh, people are just unable to grasp the context. And, you know, they have to face, you know, they they have to apologize for things that didn't even occur. And so once you've apologized for something, then that makes it exist. Yes. You know, there was nothing to be offended about until people complained about the thing that wasn't even there and then, you know, any apology that someone's pressured into gives validation to that claim. Now, I don't think anyone who worked on Dumbo is going to apologize <laughs> to anyone who, who writes for The Guardian. But it is that kind of slightly... It's that thing of, like, the heathens pray in public, you know? Mm. Well, I've, I've had enough of these racial stereotypes always being the villains. Well, if we had it so that the Mexicans and the Arabs and the Brits are always perfectly nice and perfectly that's not any kind of racial equality that's coddling that's walking on eggshells which is kind of racist like if you're treating someone of a specific race or nationality with kid gloves 
that is an equality. Absolutely. So uh, Mexicans and Arabs and British people have every right to be the villain. I think most people would probably prefer to be. Mm. I mean, I think British character actors take tremendous pride in being the sort of go-to because of the associated villainy in that British accent. Yeah. You know? Well, there's the... Is it a Jaguar or, or, or some kind of car advert with... Uh, you know, Mark Strong and, and, and Tom, is it Hiddleston and, and Ben Kingsley? And they're all saying, you know, oh, we're British, we're evil. Oh, look at us in a helicopter. <laughs> and all that, all that kind of stuff. That's my audition there, um, animation, American animation producers. <laughs> it's always London as well that they're from. They're never from Barnsley or Newcastle. <laughs> you know, the British, the British villains. <laughs> mm. um, but going on from your, from your talk there about coddling and things, the same kind of news media that that kind of com- complained, and I th- this is a completely separate issue. I will say, are also the first to point out when something does slightly change. And some news that's hit this this recently is that DreamWorks' upcoming movie, Home, is going to feature a black lead character, and Rihanna's going to voice um, Tip, mm-hmm. uh, a character who who teams up with, uh, I presume, Steve Martin's Alien. And, um, you know, that's that's basically what the film's mm-hmm. about. Uh, but here we go, the news media making a fuss and, like you say, you know, coddling to it. And, and you know, why why does it have to be a thing? Why, why it's, I mean, it's just a character in a film. Don't make a big song and dance. Who is bringing that up out of curiosity? Uh, well, this is the Metro. Metro, okay. Yeah, and there are other other news outlets that have mentioned it, but I'm just this is the this is the one that I'm reading. I do remember there was a sort of it wasn't an uproar, but it was a sort of hubbub when the Princess and the Frog came out, and being sort of embarrassed by that kind of reaction. Yes, that that, that, that would even be commented on. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, this sort of almost makes me sound like I'm doing that thing. I was just disparaging the kind of I'm so not racist, blah, blah. but no, anyone of our sort of age who was raised sort of reasonably given the the prevalence of black culture sitcoms movies etc in the 80s and 90s why would there be any sort of question that it's perfectly reasonable and expected and fine for you know the lead heroine to not be you know the aryan looking white chick mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i don't remember that being sort of called into question before you know, like, did people give Aladdin because of Princess Jasmine, who I assume wasn't meant to be strictly Caucasian? I think there there has been has been it has been written about about oh, really? um, Jasmine, but I think the problem that people had with Jasmine that was she that she showed a belly button off or something like that. It's, I've had, frankly, quite enough of these Disney films turning our kids straight, <laughs> getting them all excited about midriffs. Disgusting. <laughs> I think it just goes around that you, you, you'll you never be able to please anyone. I would prefer a world where the news that home has a character in it is perceived as the news that home has a character in it. Not the fact that it has a, you know, a black female character or any other, anything else. It's, it is, it's, you know, it is, it's the making of film. Let's not get all arsy about it just for the sake of an article. Yeah, and it's just not not very good reporting. It's not really kind of it's not really a discussion on the art form as such, is it? It's more of a discussion of, like, say, the social, uh, political side of things. It's sort of obvious. It's sort of 
I think the term is clickbait. Yes. Let's come up with something that will spark a debate or a discussion. And um, damn it, they've, they've, we've walked right into their trap. Yeah, then. <laughs> bastards. <laughs> I so rarely read the Guardian. The things I only ever have the energy for G two nowadays. I don't think they're real fans of animation. Do you remember when we would discuss that? Um, what was that bloke who wrote something about the stop motion is the low rent option? Oh we yeah. Put that on Twitter. And 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 that was a Guardian guy, was it? That was a Guardian guy. Yeah. Um, a fiend. The, the bastard. He really laid into animation, and yeah, there's not there's not much uh, there's not got much good things to say about animation. <laughs> the Guardian. Mm. Well, I have a, an article in front of me on. It's not the Metro one, but it seems to be the same kind of vibe of um, this home movie. Yeah. What does POC mean? Is that people of culture or people of color? I think it's the second one. So, we've seen little to no representation for POC in film, especially in animated ones. Disney, in particular, has been under fire for this. Most recently, in the whitewashed film Frozen, adored by many, the film definitely underrepresents POC. Well, it, you know, it had a snowman in it. That's a race, right? <laughs> and someone makes a very odd point. Someone on Tumblr. The last three Disney films that starred POC, which I'm quickly starting to loathe as an abbreviation. Just say what you want to say, for Christ's sake. Stop giving everything nicknames. <laughs> the Emperor's New Groove, Brother Bear, and The Princess and the Frog. And, um... They all involve people turning into animals. And I'm not... They just leave it at that, and I'm not entirely sure what point they're trying to make. Do they go, turn into animals, dot, 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 as if, like, join the dots? <laughs> Basically, that's what... There's, it's like a picture of the llama and the bear and the frog. Right. And then just, like, underneath it says, exactly. Well, maybe that's sort of a, an easy premise for a Disney film that the character turns into an animal and has to turn back into a human. Don't criticize its racial insensitivity, criticize its lazy writing. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's used in fairy tale before that. Well, I actually, I did finally watch The Princess and the Frog on Oh, yes. Um, which is... Are we sponsored by them now? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll float it to them. If they don't sponsor us, I'll bleep <laughs> it out. And I was, I was really sort of expecting, actually, that I'd like it, and I just sort of never got around to watching it, and... I found that the um, the story was quite, like... A, it didn't seem to have the kind of Disney wit that contemporary Disney films have sort of a high bar for nowadays. Mm. did have some lovely visual stuff. I mean, the animation is always very impressive and uh, lots of great stuff to analyze. But yeah, when, I, when you sort of get into it, it's like, oh, so it's about her trying to turn back into a human and she's lost in the woods. But that is the Emperor's New Groove, basically. Uh-huh. You know, and she's sort of have to has to befriend the you know the unlikely comrade and that kind of thing, and so that was a little underwhelming, and I felt that actually, the cultural identity of New Orleans was a, laid on a little thick, not in a way that I felt it was insensitive to the people of New Orleans, but just that it sort of depended a bit too much on it stylistically. Mm. And I remember with that documentary, The Sweatbox, we talked about yeah. many moons ago on um, what The Emperor's New Groove would have been. Kingdom of the Sun. That original film, it seemed in development, was so dependent on Aztec frames of reference that mm. I guess were definitely present in the final film in some way or other, but it wasn't so much a running theme, you know? 
it was just sort of like mm. a visual frame of reference for some of the architectural uh you know settings and backdrops but the film itself didn't have this kind of overwhelming aztec flow through that dominated all the characters personalities mm-hmm. whereas i thought in the in the princess and the frog like the kind of very sort of heavy-handed um every every creature is a is a sort of new orleans local character i find it sort of way more offensive when it's sort of dependent on like the character is dependent on accent you know mm-hmm. or any kind of stereotypical behavior just because of how much of it is indicative of a laziness in writing but in real life people that we encounter who similarly resort to playing up any kind of stereotypical behavior of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their religion, etc., etc. That's usually indicative of them being quite vacant as a human being. Mm. And that sort of seems to be the connection. They only sort of exist because what personality will I have otherwise? And I think that, you know, the identity of, of what you are rather than who you are is a very negative thing and it, you know it, it should be avoided but it's also creatively barren yes <laughs> it's uncreative to to behave that way or depict people behaving that way because realistically speaking what percentage of people that you know in real life do that's true yeah you can tell when somebody's comfortable in in themselves as opposed to putting on an act you're basically saying precisely yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think we've kind of um we've wandered into a, a subject area area which we got one message um and from the last podcast saying that we'd be a little bit too political but this is this is animation i mean you, we can talk all day long about uh the style and, and 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 how good an animation is and and the skills of animators which we do do on this podcast but you've also got to look at animation as 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 you pointed out earlier on ben as this kind of this socially and politically uh, rich subject, uh, area of subject matter, and 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 you know up for discussion. This is why we talk about the, the the issues that are presenting themselves, and issues that that really shouldn't present themselves in the year two thousand and fourteen. Really, if as long as it sort of keeps happening, and as long as it's mucking up the works a bit, it needs to be talked about. The issue is that people don't talk about it enough. Yeah, and I realise that in the in the world of podcasting, we're sort of a drop in the ocean. And we're certainly, we don't have the kind of listenership of people whose main intentions in their podcasts or whatever are about sociopolitical issues. I don't think that means we should disregard that in terms of these things do have a cultural significance and that cultural significance has a ripple effect. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So there's a new TV series uh, which is airing on ITV4, uh, 10pm on Tuesdays, I believe, called Warren United. It's an animated sitcom. It's a British animated sitcom, which is an area that's a bit of a, a rare thing in, in the UK. You know, they don't happen very often. And when they do happen, they don't they don't really have a successful track record, viewing figures-wise, shall we say. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them are, are very incredibly artistically uh, well done, funny, and they, they work and they fit within their own worlds that they create incredibly well, but they may not be received too well <laughs> it's a cruel cruel world out there it, it is it's probably a little bit too early to say um about warren beyond our own opinions uh how that's going to be received because i know it's been given the thumbs up by certain big tabloids like the independent and the guardian you know they've said nice things about it which is great i mean i enjoyed it ben uh what did you think of it i see sort of potential in it mm-hmm. 
but I also there's an awareness of the circumstances I guess around its creation I think the the focus on football that's sort of one of the things that kind of helped get it off the ground and especially as far as ITV4 is concerned right mm-hmm. like they had they're mainly a sports centric network it's a bit of a blokey channel it's it, the the show repeats of minder and like cricket from somewhere that no one's ever heard of <laughs> so i would assume that the logic is that by having it a be an animated sitcom in the vein of the popular animated sitcoms of from the u.s mm-hmm. and also having this focus on you know our nation's most beloved sport i'm assuming it is mm-hmm. that that would actually widen its audience mm-hmm what the other possibility could be is that it would in fact limit the audience to the overlap of people who are football enthusiasts and animation fans rather than bringing both together Uh, yeah I know exactly what you mean picture two circles and instead of the two circles you just get the bit in the middle where they meet the um is it the Venn diagram is that what you call that let's yeah yes I I, maybe I know (laughs) the the circle the circle diagram. diagram Picture a pie chart. Of a- <laughs> I, it, it's something that I I agree with you. I think it's uh, you know who freaks me out, Ben. Aaron Wood. Aaron Wood freaks me out. You know why? That guy's a problem because <laughs> because he likes football and he likes animation. Pick <laughs> pick an obsession, Aaron. I don't think you can like anything in the outdoors. Yeah. If you like, I mean, I assume he enjoys watching football rather than actually playing it uh yes yeah i know it that's okay that's a saving he's grace. a huge chelsea fan he is depressingly active Aaron. <laughs> it really does sort of betray his like he's he's one of those people who's just sort of getting life right in the sense that he's balancing out his animation studio work with an active physical life uh, we just we will say at this point Aaron is the guy who does the website of squiggly he's, he's one of the one of the owners and <laughs> we 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 do love him um, although he's probably going to kill me for saying he's a Chelsea fan, he's actually a Tottenham fan. That's a funny football joke for people who like football. I will take your word for it. <laughs> You're going to have to. It's odd, isn't it, that um, the, the show that we're talking about, Warren, is actually very football-centric. It's about a character called Warren Kingsley and uh, his entire family uh, who have to put up with his obsession with football. Now, I thought that the show, I, I enjoyed the show... Uh, the football stuff wasn't too bad. I'm not a massive football fan at all, but I enjoyed looking at this man who was kind of obsessed with something, mm-hmm. and it's something I can obviously relate to because I'm obsessed with animation, you know. Uh, and I can go on to bore people. Uh, I'm surprised people download these podcasts, but um, you know. <laughs> well, you forget that I'm on them too. <laughs> How could I forget? How could I forget? Like sultry, dulcet tones, Stephen. <laughs> They're not listening to what we have to say. They're just turning down the lights and letting it play in the background. So this guy's obsessed with football, but you can take that obsession and you can trans- transfer it into any other thing. You can transfer it into, you know, the things that you're obsessed with. And the pedigree of the show is excellent. You know, you've got Simon Nye, who who did um, uh, Men Behaving Badly. And you've got Tim Searle, who, who did 2D TV and I Am Not an Animal, you know, of, of terrific films and baby cow animation. It is a solid show, I think. But like you say, having seen only one episode at this point, uh, the point of recording the podcast, it does leave a lot, a lot of room for growth, which you can see it's got, you know, it's got all the potential in. But one of the one of the things which might be holding it back is perhaps the UK sitcom structure, because you've only got six episodes in a series, which 
always kind of lets down UK shows, I feel. But in America, when they get 13 episodes, uh, there's more growth, there's more, you know, you get to see a bit more of the characters. Well, I think it's sort of essential in a way. And I I kind of, Mm -hmm. it's creatively so important and yet so disregarded in, in UK television production that just how long it takes to make a show, to have a show sort of, you know, hit its stride. Very few of them are like that off the bat. Uh, even live action sitcoms, you know, mm-hmm. and the most successful live action sitcoms in the states very rarely have good first seasons, like whole first seasons, twenty plus episodes. You know, I don't. Ev- everyone I know who tolerates the Big Bang Theory disregards the first year or the first couple of years. Uh, ditto Two and a Half Men. Cheers is one of the biggest shows of all time, and that tanked for three something years. And then by, like, the fourth season, people finally started watching it. Mm-hmm. And somehow it was able to stay on the air that long. But then once it hit its stride, it became, like, this beloved sitcom institution. You can't have everything completely worked out, you know, by six episodes. And certainly not by one. Mm-hmm. You can only establish, you know, certain character traits. But the uh, And the issues then are that, you know, are the characters that haven't been explored yet... Are they enticing enough to want to find out more? Do we really want to find out that much more about the slightly emo daughter he has? Mm-hmm. Do the voice performances give enough humanity to the characters to want to, you know, follow their story, to want to find out more? It came across a little bit like a patchwork, and as most first episodes of anything do. Mm-hmm. Anyone, obviously, who, who is familiar with the first episode of The Simpsons, knows how utterly irreconcilable it is not just with the show now but the show a year from then a year from like when it debuted Mm -hmm. and by the sort of five-year mark it was almost a completely different show the whole first season of the simpson is a very bizarre parade of of violently aggressive over-the-top uses of color and paint and very characterful animation but almost to this kind of extreme and it's also very sloppy as well it's like a working sketchbook and that's where you get that's where you get the problems though is that people um and I'm not using Warren as as an example of this I'm going to use full english as an example of this full english went for the simpsons they didn't go for their own identity they went for a british simpsons they didn't and they were they were unashamed in admitting that that they were going to sorry the british simpsons or the british family guy they were going to create something more offensive than that but their benchmark was the simpsons yeah. which is a terrible terrible shame and you can tell with something like warren that although it does feature a family i like to think that they would have been kind of developed independently of of any kind of goal to to be the simpsons every show that's really kind of done that they want to make this game-changing show what's the absolute easiest way to do it let's imitate on as many levels as we feel necessary this established animation domination style from the states yeah you know and this has come up before that's not the point the reason those shows did well initially was that family guy didn't look like a show that looked like family guy when it started mm-hmm. it, it looked different it felt different regardless of how many people say it was a simpsons ripoff i remember when it came on the first time it wasn't like the simpsons was at all no, it didn't have this. It, it certainly used a lot of um, devices that older episodes of The Simpsons had used sparingly, like the cutaway gags. There was a period of The Simpsons where that was sort of a recurring thing. 
and the critic as well like i think it was probably that sort of same kind of period yeah and both i mean the critic didn't last more than a couple of years but the simpsons moved on from that style quite quickly and i guess family guy just sort of picked up on that and just the point was it would use it to this kind of extreme of this is a big component of how every episode is going to be structured mm-hmm. that's the only thing i can think of that was directly lifted well, well, the, they, the, the Family Guy model is basically using a family as a, a sounding board or a, something to bounce off all these ideas about pop culture and um, the world and, 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 and things like that. But they, you know, they are just using basically this family to be able to, to air these opinions and views. And you know, that's what the cutaway gags are. That's what the, you know, the stories are. It's all about that. The Simpsons was originally just a show about a family. You know, in the vein of of the Flintstones or the Cosby Show or something, you know, like that. Um, and I think the reason that there's a family in in Warren United comes more of a. It's funnier for a family to get upset about a dad liking football than it is if he was just a a, a guy in his twenties and his mates down the pub thought it was you know talking rubbish. I think it's been written quite authentically in that in that respect. But if you look at other animated sitcoms, they are they don't center around they don't all center around a family. Uh, but when they do center around a family, they do obviously get draw the comparison to The Simpsons. Full English was rather foolhardy in its efforts to imitate Family Guy, but it did it in an incredibly lazy fashion. So in Family Guy, you'd get a cutaway gag. Uh, Peter would say something, there'd be a cutaway gag. Um, and it would be, you know, it'd be, it'd be well done, you know, unique um, and, you know, in the Family Guy style. If you watched Full English, the characters would just turn and look at the television and it would just be like Gordon Ramsay on the telly or, you know, a celebrity that wanted to lampoon on the telly. Yeah. How ridiculously lazy is that? And And, and that kind of sets a precedent for when Warren turns up this show with a with a kind of its own heart its own spirit that's not setting out to imitate anyone you know and and, and full english kind of ruined it a little bit for for people that now have preconceptions of what to expect of something like Warren but the UK animated um sitcom market is a lot more original than just using families obviously there's there's the brilliant bob and margaret did you ever watch that oh, of course yeah that was huge. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, and that was just about a single couple who couldn't have kids, but like one was a dentist and one was a shropodist, I think. And it was just, it was brilliant. That one was kind of, it was this mix of quaint, but also quite bold. Like I remember one of the storylines involved the woman getting like sexually assaulted while she was under from Novocaine. <laughs> And that being, like, the joke. I don't usually laugh at that situation. <laughs> but that wasn't, like, them trying to do, like, a very special episode. That was them, like, you know, being quite dark in their humour. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that was... And it wasn't this kind of slathered-on edginess. Like, we're going to be so edgy. We're going to be so, you know, violent. We're going to be so shocking. It felt like what it was, which was sort of a bit British and a bit Canadian. And it had this... It didn't feel like it... It didn't look very British. Like it didn't have that sort of British vibe, but the characters, obviously, were very sort of relatable. It was a strange sort of limbo world, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, to a lesser extent, something like Stressed Eric kind of had a similar vibe. I, I also, as with Bob and Margaret, I liked that Stressed Eric was 
about a family sort of it was a dysfunctional family it was a sort of single fatherhood with the estranged wife who's become narcissistic and um irresponsible and is neglecting the sort of <laughs> the child care and so everything is put upon this guy who is he's very put upon but he's also very unlikable yeah so there are lots of things to that that were and this was even before family guy so you can't really sort of compare it to that i think if they had tried to do a show about a family like the simpsons it would have been seen as too obvious it's almost as if family guy has given other people who are developing tv shows an excuse to use that go-to of the family south park in a lot of respects can be very family oriented but that wasn't really how it started it was more about, I guess, the camaraderie of, of childhood. But some of the best South Park episodes now are the ones to do with Stan and his father. But then the next episode could be about a completely different set of characters. But that's after, you know, over 15 years of development. Yeah. The issue also that was definitely present in Stressed Eric, and I have a suspicion might rear its head in this instance, is a sort of inconsistency of tone both in regards to audience but also in regard to just writing style and i know that simon nye is involved in this show yes do you know the extent of his involvement uh yeah it's his he's the lead writer on it okay yeah see something that i i really enjoyed men behaving badly when i was very young Mm -hmm. and so i'll catch it when it's on tv and what i've noticed doesn't date very well about it is it's almost like it's two shows that have been kind of welded together. What I realize now is I actually wasn't so much a fan of the show as I'm a fan of Martin Clunes and Carolyn Quentin as, as very good character actors. Yeah. But the other couple in that show was not nearly as well executed. The relationship, the sort of dance they do. Uh, Neil Morrissey's character is a cartoon character, whereas Martin Clunes's character is this kind of He's a, he's a sort of oddball, but he's a lot more believable. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sort of feel like it holds together. Oh, it's obviously, it was a hugely successful show, so I can't really, you know, criticize it. It had its day in the sun, and it was very successful. But looking back at something like that, you wonder, well, is that something that's going to be present in in a show where it could be a lot easier to devolve into goofiness and wackiness? And I saw quite a few little moments of that in the first episode. Things where, like, there's a scene that's, that's sort of meant to come off as, as quite relatable and quite grounded, but using animation as a medium to communicate ideas in a way that are uh, a little exaggerated and a little, you know, um, there was a, a therapy scene, I remember. Yes. That was one of the better sort of scenes in it, but it did go on a bit too long. But it was followed quite quickly by a sort of, you know, that thing, actually, we were talking about it last episode of the, you know, the, the Clockwork Orange thing. You look at the visual and you get, like, an electric shock. <laughs> Uh, so you won't like so he's looking at football and this yeah. German mad scientist doctor is administering all this torture to him and that's done in this very Seth MacFarlane-esque over the top way and then it sort of goes back to the the comparative realism of his domestic life mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that doesn't work necessarily it's how accepting are the general public going to be of that with only six episodes to to acclimate to yes if they had 13 episodes or 20 episodes, I think it would probably be in with more of a shot. I, I think the, the issue that's, that's going to present itself here is that it will either be assessed as an animation or it will be assessed as a sitcom. It won't ever be assessed as an animated sitcom, which kind of 
scuppers any efforts a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the animated sitcom operates completely different. Well, not completely different, but it operates on a different level to a to a live action sitcom. Mm-hmm. Basically, because of the the way that writers get to employ these far fetched ideas, such as the uh, talking horses, for example, that that, that, that feature in the show. Mm-hmm. And, and when, a, when an animated sitcom experiments and starts pushing the boundaries, six episodes might not be enough to do that, as you say. No. I would say it almost certainly isn't enough to do that. And I, I don't want to be a negative Nancy, if you'll pardon my language. I just don't know why it has to be that sort of limited. I think that if a show like I'm Not an Animal had been given maybe ten episodes rather than six, there could have been a future in that. Maybe they didn't want to do more than six episodes in that case. I remember watching the first episode with quite a few people of that of I'm Not an Animal and being the only one of this quite large group of people who was willing to give the second episode a go mm. because the first the style of it was so extreme they tried to cram way too much exposition in mm. that's a big ask of your audience whereas two or three episodes in where things slowed down a bit where you got to sort of follow more of the characters individually the um Robin, I think that Steve Coogan plays. Yes, he became a, v- a very fun character. <laughs> yeah. in that show, With all his schemes um, and everything. <laughs> yeah, like I said, maybe they didn't want to do that more than one season, but maybe that could have been. That at least was a different style, and it at least was a very different premise, and it was an inventive premise. It was a it was a fun idea for a show. Lab animals who've been treated to develop sentience and are trying to make it in the world mm-hmm. when they make their sort of you know their jailbreak. I like that. That's kind of weird and inventive and, you know, it's from 10 years ago, but even still, you know, it's original. It's original thinking. Yeah. A great cast as well. Yeah. Steve Coogan, Simon Pegg. Who else is in it? Um, Kevin Eldon is in it. Julia Davis was Julia in it. Julia Davis, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's brilliant, you know. It's an absolutely brilliant piece of work. And that's uh, obviously directed by Tim Searle. Did you ever see Bromwell High? No, we've talked about it, though. But um, I think that one passed me by. Yeah. Actually, I can punch it up on the YouTube. Well, we talked about it because I, I'd never seen it before and I'd never seen any of the reaction to it. And I wa- So I watched it completely independently of any kind of outside interference, um, you know, any kind of pre-opinion, you know, or anything. And it's a show which is uh, directed by Pete Bishop and designed by uh, David Whittle, who's like a, a, an illustrator who, who does, uh, he did uh, pop justice books, which are, he's got quite a, a unique style. And it's about like some kids in a school. Basically, it's just a parody of chav culture and things. It does kind of use offensive terminology in it uh, to get laughs and to, and to, you know, to be funny. But um, as an animated sitcom, you know, as something which has kind of laid out its stall and, and, and set its parameters, it does work incredibly well. You find yourself understanding and, and enjoying watching the characters. The design is, is, is all right. You know, it's, it's, it's easy enough to watch. And you kind of become invested in it, which is something that an aim of, of basically every television show is for people to become invested. And, and, and I personally really like Bromwell High for that, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I viewed it as an animated sitcom as opposed to as a, as a piece of animation or as a, as a sitcom on its, on its own. Mm-hmm. But if it did have, you know, looser characters or if it did have a wishy-washy script or something, it's not something that you're really going to tell your friends to watch. Well, I found an episode of it online, and the episode is called Tolerance. Mm. 
So this is going to... I'm going to have this episode be my, my first watch because I'm only basing it on the name of the episode, but I'm going to see how it deals with that theme <laughs> based on the conversation we had earlier yeah. and see if it passes my litmus test. I'm hoping that it doesn't have a preachy message and it's actually sort of more sort of realistic about, you know, what acceptable tolerance is. Realistic in its own style, <laughs> I would okay. say. Yeah. But it, it, but it, it's also an example of, of the way that um, animated sitcoms don't have to centre around a family. You know, the family in this is is three girls. Um, mm-hmm. So it passes the, the Bechdel test if it doesn't pass the Ben Mitchell test straight away. Fair enough. There are other examples of, of, of animated sitcoms that, that, that do kind of venture away from the family vibe. Some not so successfully, like Pope Town. Some some do meet like a, a, an audience and, and, and become quite enjoyable and defining. Something like Pond Life, for what it was and for, for the audience that it aimed for and everything, it was a very good, very good show. Crapston Villas as well. Mm-hmm. We're just firing off a list now. Well, Crapston Villas I also like because it was stop motion. Yes. So it doesn't all have to be 2D. It doesn't all have to be family. It doesn't all have to be, you know, for, to be able to go for you know, something unique. Crabston Villas was this, if I remember it correctly, it was a kind of a view of levels of society. There was, was it three floors on a, on this flat or something? And, and each one was slightly different, you know, kind of looking at class, the class structure. Yeah. When something's rooted successfully in an area such as it's going to explore class or it's going to explore family or it's going to explore, uh, you know, other issues, youth culture, for example, you know, that's when a good show comes together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember there was one in particular that was just so an instant failure? It was, I guess, sort of in a two D TV Dead Ringers type mold. It was CG, and it was um, oh, it was called Head Cases or something, possibly. Oh, it, it was it was about people in in the news and pop culture, like actual people pr- with the voices by um impersonators yeah it was it was definitely i've just searched up now um blimey yeah head cases and that was that was embarrassingly bad yeah if i if i remember right it was uh and i just kind of been that long ago i think it was like five years ago maybe uh it was 2008 2008 okay yeah so it's i mean yeah. that was another one that just kind of you know happened and then rightfully so it kind of disappeared but uh Again, there's sort of laziness to it. People are going to love watching these figures get sent up. You know, will we? It's, it seemed like a huge gimmick because 2D TV had come before. And really, I think 2D TV is on record as being the most successful British animated comedy show. You know, primetime animated comedy show. I think at one point it had something like seven or eight million viewers which well, this is obviously in an age before watching on, on you know interactive telly and all that kind of stuff, but still quite a huge audience. And the only reason that it's not on TV now is because it was paid a, a huge disservice by, by ITV, who decided to screen it at like 11 o'clock on like a Monday or Tuesday night or something like that, mm-hmm. which is criminal in a way, if you think about it. Well, you may as well just take it off. Yeah. You know, they had the goose that lays the golden eggs. And they let it starve to death. I think one of the worst things about Warren United is the fact that it's on 10 o'clock on ITV4. If you put something on at 10 o'clock, 
you're kind of expecting a different vibe, aren't you? Yeah. Than, what, than if something was on at like seven o'clock or eight o'clock or something. And it's on ITV4. I can't remember ever being on a bus and looking at somebody checking the watch and saying, what's what's the matter, mate? And he, and he goes, oh, I, I hope I'm not late home because there's something brilliant on ITV4 that I need to get home to see. There's su- such a, a plethora of choice and, and um, it almost seems like the show's buried. And I hope people... Uh, have a have a look at it, and they can look at it. And if they don't like it, they don't have to watch it again. You know, we. <laughs> but you know, at least give it a chance. So we've got an interview with uh, Tim Searle, the director of Warren United, uh, the director of Two D TV, the director of I'm Not an Animal. Uh, he's now doing a series of uh, Mr Bean, the animated series. He's the head of animation at Baby Cow, and he used to run terrific films. We've had him on the podcast before our first Christmas podcast, when he was talking about the cow that almost missed Christmas. But here we are chatting to Tim Searle about Warren United. How did it arrive on your door, Warren? I did, as you know, I'm not an animal, and 2D TV and a Mm -hmm. a few bits and bobs that sort of caught people's attention. And this guy, Bill Friedman, came to see me just out of the blue with a project that he wanted to develop. Basically, he... He met me through Andy Blasdell at Cell Action because he'd gone to them and said, oh, we're thinking of uh, doing an animation ourselves and uh, I hear your software is really great and um, we want to start it up. And he, Andy said, you're mad, you know, you can't do it just like that. You've got no experience of animation. I think you should talk to Tim. And uh, so Bill came to see me and uh, that was the first time I met him. Was, that was eight years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so it's taken a while. There's a, a fair few projects in between then and now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there have been. There were lots at uh, Baby Cow and uh, and now I've uh, taken a sabbatical from Baby Cow and um, I'm directing Mr Bean at, at Tiger Aspect, which is a great gig. Uh, so how did uh, Simon Nye get involved? Bizarrely, uh, I mean, I've, I've kind of worked with him around the houses, but bizarrely, he is... A friend of a friend, you know, and so he, um, Bill, Bill's son Ben, who runs the Prince Charles Cinema, amongst many other things, he belongs to a running club or something like that. They, through, through <coughs> mutual friends, they got to Simon Nye with our little treatment that we put together. So um, he was intrigued by what we were up to. He got involved at quite an early stage, really, and did some. Uh, um, speculative work on scripts and what have you. So um, I think he recognised it as a as an opportunity to do something different, you know. So he's a lovely bloke, and uh, I'm a huge fan. Mm, yeah, me too. Membe uh, and Badley is uh, it's, uh, it's one of the things that I've got on DVD. I really I really enjoy watching it. It's such a a great selection of characters there, which kind of goes on to to Warren as well. You know, there's, yeah. there's some great characters in in Warren. And the whole show being centred around an obsession is an, yeah. is an interesting angle. <laughs> well, yeah, um, Bill's uh, take on it was, you know, that, that it, it's from personal experience in that he is a huge Arsenal fan, and uh, and he he loves the game and looks around the the uh, the ground where he sits and um, and is aware that, that many other people there. Uh, rely on football to see him through life really and uh, it's an obsession and also a prop for many people so uh, I think he thought that 
you know, that, that, that it would be thoroughly transferable, that idea that people have something like football, it might be fr- football, it might be something else, but generally people, certainly as they get older in life, tend to have some passion or something or other that keeps them going. Mm. Um, often that's in conflict with 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 sense <laughs> and the family and all the rest of it. <laughs> therein, therein lies lies humour, I would imagine. Any anywhere where there's a bit of conflict. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, did you say you sell action to animate it? Was there like a, a quick turnaround on the episodes? No, we didn't use sell action. Uh, we uh, obviously originally intended to do so, but then we uh, decided that um, it was all about minutiae and subtlety. And so we started, bizarrely, to explore doing it in Maya. And uh, we did a test in Maya. It looked beautiful. It really did. And we learned a lot. Um, but then we also learned that it would be a thoroughly con- a restrictive methodology because, um, you know, every, every prop you make takes bloody ages and um, costs a lot of money to produce. So we, we shelved that idea. And at that point, it became evident that... Um, with the best will in the world, at that point in UK animation's history, it just wouldn't be possible to even uh, contemplate funding a show that could be produced in the UK. So we um, partnered up with a company in Canada called Smiley Guys, and they use Flash. Oh, right. It's a Flash thing rigged in a similar way that we would rig Cell Action, and uh, they've got their proprietary kind of a bit of coding involved and what have you, but essentially it's a rigged methodology, the same as we would do with with Cell, but they use Flash. I did notice it's a kind of uh, a puppet-based uh, show like 2D TV. I'm not an animal, and, and, and the stuff you usually uh, put together. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting about Maya as well. I mean, um, is that how you approach the kind of look and design of the show with that in mind? And then you thought, oh well. You know, I like the kind of 3D aspect. Can we try and capture that in Flash or, or, or anything well, else? Well, the important thing was to... Uh, the reason that we initially went with Ma- uh, to look at Maya was that was led by the idea of... of, of, of um, we wanted to deal with subtlety, you know, and cut subtle um, facial characteristics and, and uh, small aspects of English humour really and a lot of the time that, that, that relies on little tiny little movements you know so we that was, that was what made, led us to explore a 3D solution but um, in the end as I say um, that would have cost the equivalent of uh, a small country's gross domestic product to produce six half hours so we, we to the, you know in terms of the complexity we were wanting to look at um, so um shelved that idea and and, uh, and went for the 2D approach but hopefully as we've produced something which is is of reasonable quality although you know people are uh, it irks me that you know even the nicest press articles and we have had some lovely ones in the past couple of weeks everyone 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 says oh it's what it tries to make comparisons with the Simpsons yeah and uh, the Simpsons <laughs> I love The Simpsons, don't get me wrong. I really do. One of my proudest things is my Matt Groening cartoon he sent me um, because he he really liked I'm Not an Animal. But the idea that we're, you know, that The Simpsons is out there, therefore there's no room for another animated half-hour show is bonkers, you know. And uh, But but everyone's saying, oh, is this The British Simpsons? It's like, well, no, it ain't. (laughs) You know, it was made on, not for anything else, it was made on 
but I bet the, the equivalent of their petty cash, you know, it was uh, it, it, a tiny budget we, we had to deal with, and uh, it's on at 10 o'clock uh, on ITV4, so it's a lot, doesn't it? Well, I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring The Simpsons up because it does cast, it casts quite a shadow, doesn't it, over over anyone trying to put together an animated sitcom, and particularly the UK. And Warren hasn't really gone out in its press to say, "Oh, where? Oh, look at look at Warren Kingsley. He's he's Homer Simpson, or yeah. you know, look at the family. Is that? I think I think um, Darren Boyd might have said something to Chortle or Digital Spy or something like that." Along them lines, but you know, it's a, he's a dad, isn't he? Is a is a is a kind of foolhardy dad. So you know, there is that a slight comparison, but the entire show isn't really a family show trying to to top The Simpsons. I think it's a thing on itself. It's not doing, say, what Full English tried to do. No, no. I think I think because The Simpsons and The Family Guy are so uber successful, and it are acquired by major broadcasters in the country. So rather than you know, I know that you know certainly no one gets the sack in broadcasting for acquiring a hugely already successful show, but they do get the sack for take, sticking their necks out and going with an original show. So uh, I think that there's been a lot of fear with animation, and there's been a few failures. Let's face it, with with half hour sitcoms, uh, animated sitcoms, and things that haven't exactly set the world alight, and. Um, and I think that there's we've got a mountain to climb in terms of uh, trying to overcome that prejudice. You know, I think people have just already made their minds up that it's not going to be any good. You know, and uh, that's a shame because we've worked hard, and I think that it is distinct and it is a reasonable quality. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's only one episode in as well. But yeah. we, but while we while we're talking about episodes, do you think that? only six episodes is a little bit restrictive for like the animated form, you know, for people to get used to it. Because over in the States, Rick and Morty's just aired and it was given yeah. 13 episodes and it was like, it was, it was picked up quite, uh, quite suddenly and people enjoyed it, but it was only yeah. six or seven episodes in that people were really sort of going, wow, this is brilliant. And it managed to develop a fan base. Whereas uh, Warren and, and other shows only get six episodes here. Yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, a history of all shows, the way that commissioning works in this country, of number of, of shows, of series being commissioned in six, be it Ripper Street or or, or anything, you know. So it uh, does rely on um, a lot of luck in terms of weather conditions or what maybe was on the other side um, to uh, to see if um, if you can capture an audience that quickly. Because yeah, the American series have got often commissioned in 26s you know when certainly six is no good when you try to sell it internationally because um six is 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 you between the rock and a hard place because you know people buy in blocks of 13 or 26 or 52 you know so not that i'm being ungrateful but six is six is a weird sort of number really it doesn't really you're completely reliant on getting a second series if it's going to if it's going to stand any chance well fingers crossed for that yeah uh, do you think there's any kind of rules that apply to animated sitcoms that are, that make it, make a show different from a live action sitcom? You know, when you approach it as a director. Well, I think it's fair to say that animation is very hungry for jokes and ideas. I think because of the nature, especially of two D animation, that you need to keep the keep the ideas coming thick and fast. You know, much more hungry than uh, the live action equivalent in terms of 
the jokes per page. We're really able to pack it in. And I think because you can, because of the way the, you approach the writing and then you approach the animatic, you keep going back and peppering it up and peppering it up and peppering it up and just keeping it, hopefully, as rich as you can possibly make it. So you want it to bear repetition. It's designed to be watched over and over again. That's the... That's what you want people to do. You want you want people to go, oh, that, I'm not, I didn't catch all that. I'll watch it again. You know, that, that's the ideal, you know, um, as opposed to, I think, if I say with live action, it's, that's not necessarily the, the hope and the ambition. You know, I think animation, because the way it's, I don't know, I've always thought, because it's so, so much work goes into it. And so it's so, you know, it's, I love animation. I, I, I tend to watch things over and over again. And, and you get more out of it each time you watch it, don't you? Well, I've watched the, the episode sent to me a couple of times and you do pick up nice little gags. It's particularly, uh, I did. I think I mentioned to you, I saw the, the Searle Cycles <laughs> <laughs> in the background on the board and yeah. Smiley Guy Tires, so yeah. alluding to, to yourself and, and the animators <laughs> over in Canada. Well, it's a little indulgence, isn't it? But, but it's weird with football stadia, you know, you you, it's, you need to have some branding on it. It would look weird if you didn't have anything. So we were trying to, as you can imagine, Bill Friedman and the, the other guys on the small commercial uh, side, they were, they were saying at the point when uh, product placement became viable in, this, in, in the UK, it's like a couple of years ago, it was like, oh, great, we can get you know, real products on in the stadia and that will help with funding our... Um, show but there's been very careful and conservative baby steps into the idea of real brands getting involved with shows like this I think or any shows and even Coronation Street I don't think there's much in the way of product placement I'd Uh, rather see jokes than Than actual advertisements, though. But if it's fun, if it funds the thing, backup, wouldn't it? You know, if it was, if it looks too commercial, I think people would resist it. Mm. But it, I mean, if it funds the thing, if it gets animators working and uh, and keeps mm. the show running, then then I suppose it's uh, you've got to take that as a as a benefit, maybe. Well, I mean, it's it's a future, isn't it? That's that's you know, as I say, a couple of years ago when the whole product placement thing started to emerge, I think a lot of people thought it was going to be. Um, a lot more um, prevalent than it's actually become. Um, so I think it's funny to use fictitious advertising brands. And so, yeah, when I got the opportunity to, you know, for me and my lad to have our little Searle and Sons cycles, and I thought it was funny. <laughs> Indulgent. Yes. <laughs> I think you're allowed to be. Yeah. <laughs> so um, ITV4 then. It's a bit of, it's a bit out there, isn't it? it, it to me, it doesn't yeah. seem like it's been given much of a much of a shot. I mean, uh, thankfully, it, like you say, it's been picked up by I think the Independent and the Guardian gave gave really nice write ups. I think I think my write up was fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to be well received, and hopefully, people will actually go to to the channel. Yeah, well, we got pick of the um, critics' cut choice. I think it was in the Times and pick of the day and all that stuff, but. You know, it's um, people have got to find it, and and I'm I'm very don't get me wrong, uh, ITV4. I'm very grateful that you gave us a run out, but I think that um, you know it's fair to say that we're desperately hoping that we get viewers to have a look on ITV4, and and if ITV are sufficiently impressed, that they'll give us a run out um, another day on ITV1. That's obviously the hope. It's like being promoted up the leagues. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know, it, there's so much choice, isn't there, in terms of uh, 
uh, your TV channels and um, people have got a they habit they form habits of where they expect things to be and I'm not entirely sure that they expect new comedy to be um, there but 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 hooray they've given us a go so you know it, and because it's got the sport angle that that um, got us got us in there and we got Clive Tildesley to be our commentator which is fun working with him so um, that gives it an ITV feel without really being overt and um, we're, we're cracking on and we're getting um, more and more bits of good feedback when people actually get a chance to watch it so um, let's hope by the end of the six that more and more folks get to see it fingers crossed yeah. uh, could you tell us a bit about the upcoming episodes and you know the characters and, and stories and particular favourite bits of yours yeah I, I think it's, I, I really enjoy um, Warren and Dilip's relationship and that's tested to the hill in one episode when Warren gets accused of being a racist I won't tell you exactly what happens but it's a misunderstanding because he's frustrated by the fact that the, the, the millionaire owners of Brainsford United aren't quite as rich as the billionaires who buy up Rovers next door. And uh, he gets frustrated because the owners of his club aren't as, as uh, wealthy as the ones next door, so, and so they're going to get a better better club. So he gets frustrated, and, and his daughter overhears a, uh, a conversation where she just thinks he's uh, he said something horribly racist and dibs him in, and uh, fun ensues. Uh, but... Um, there's a mascot where uh, he uh, they're, they're on a holiday of a lifetime, uh, a skiing skiing holiday. It really is a uh, once-off uh, uh, treat for them all. And rather than him enjoying that, he gets the opportunity for his son to be a mascot. Then, then he's completely taken by that idea. So uh, that, that's uh, I, I, I like that episode. But we've got um, yeah, we've got we've got we've got most most of the episodes. Um, uh, I'd like to think that they are thoroughly enjoyable to people, regardless if they're into football or not. You know, it's it, anyone who's been in a family should hopefully get something out of this. Like, like you know, I'm I, my my obsession is is bike racing and cycling. You know, and that is as important to me as as football is to to Warren and. I other friends of mine are into motorbikes or fishing or you know golf or all sorts of things um, that, are, that are something in a, uh, of an interest aside from work and the family you know so and some people get horribly obsessed which I think is really funny you're now working taking a sabbatical to, to work on Mr Bean yes. um, the animated series which is is making well in my eyes a welcome return I, I, I quite like watching the, the shorts the nice little things and what can you tell us about this new series well we're doing it in cell action but we're doing it in cell action like you've never seen. Basically, the, the, the methodology has been completely got a huge shot in the arm. It's um, essentially led by the ambition to produce an quality, high-quality animation in the UK, which is akin to the level of the animation that was done 10 years ago using hundreds and hundreds of people drawing the thing. You know, the, the, the series that was done before was drawn by hand and um, digitally composited. So in terms of the fluidity, it's, it's, it is be- uh, nicely done. We're going to produce animation of at least that quality, and I'd like to suggest infinitely better, because we are all in one room in Shepherd's Bush, and we can all talk to each other. So in terms of the quality of the 
uh, comedy. I'd like to think that it's, it's going to be uh, easier to communicate with one another and the animation will be more true to Rowan's uh, character, you know. So um, uh, we've got a lot, I mean, dark, you know, regular contact with Rowan and it, we're working with, with, uh, with him with the, on the voice records and the writing and, and we are desperately keen to um, be true to the character, you know, and, uh, and I'm loving it. I'm learning loads because everything I've done before has been script led and this is, it's script led, but it's not wordy, wordy, you know, like the stuff I've done with baby cows, all been very wordy, wordy stuff. And this is physical comedy. It's, uh, Charlie Chaplin, Jack Tatty and Laurel Hardy and, and things like that. And we're using proscenium and arch approach to the comedy, you know, so the performance. So we, we, we shoot a lot of stuff on the wide, you know, and um, allow the character to act. And so that means for the animators, it's a brilliantly liberating gig. And we've got, I've got animators I've worked with for a long time working on it and some brand new people that are just brilliant animators who are brand new to cell action working on it. And they all say it's a hugely liberating project to work on because there's no just standing around blinking, waiting for the narrator to... To, to finish their lines or uh, have a couple, a couple of characters on mid-shot chatting away for a while and eat through some footage. This is, this is acting all the time. It sounds like a real treat. And obviously the, that's something Mr Bean always... You always keep your eye on the character, whether it's live action or animated. You've worked, yeah. on, you've worked on like um, uh, very different productions. 2D TV was like a fast turnaround, plenty of content, plenty of scripts... Uh, I'm not an animal, and Warren seem to be a bit more kind of crafted differently. Um, yeah. And Mr. Bean, like you say, is more kind of acting and things. Is there anything that you that's on still on your wish list, or anything you'd like to do more of? Well, I'm, I'm just uh, my ambition at the moment is to make Mr. Bean as as brilliant as it can be, you know, and that's what I'm focusing on. And to be honest with you, I can't really see beyond it at the moment. It's uh, there's 52 episodes. It's taken up a big part of my old noggin, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> It's um, my absolute focus to do this as well as I possibly can. So I've not really thought about what I'm going to do next. But I love comedy. I've doing. I've been lucky enough to be doing comedy for you know all my career. Yeah, I feel really lucky to be able to have been working with you know such disparate people as Lee Evans and John Bishop and Issy Sooty and Johnny Vegas and people like that. And you know I did that. The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas, which had a lovely cast, you know, and, and uh, Simon Greenall and people like that, you know. I've worked with some really interesting folks, and now I'm working with Rowan Atkinson, and, and it's great. I'm, I'm lucky, I know I am. Well, it's, uh, it's 10 to 10 at night on Tuesday night, so in 10 yes. minutes' time, uh, <laughs> Warren's going to be on TV, so I should yes. really let you get off. <laughs> but on ITV4. ITV4. Oh, ITV, ITV player, if you miss it. Yes, yeah. Well, it's the, the world of uh, kind of uh, multi-platform and, and different ways of viewing it, people can always go back and watch it on there. But Tim, yeah. thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today and for giving us the insight on Warren and, and, and future projects. Really appreciate it. So thank you to Tim Sell for uh, chatting with us. And uh, yes, I'm interested to see how Warren United uh, expands on the first episode and how things, uh, things progress from here. I mean, who knows? It could be sort of the future of, of UK adult animation, or it could just be sort of the first few steps in the right direction, hopefully one or the other. But as we've sort of discussed up to this point, certainly uh, uh, some potential there. Well, I, I certainly hope that it, that it at least opens doors. You know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't continue to, go to, to great success itself, 
I think it's the kind of thing which which will open doors, hopefully, if the right people are watching. It could lead to something good, and hopefully it will, because, you know, with the tax breaks coming in and, and everything else, there are people out there wanting to create unique, funny shows that just happen to be animated. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see the, uh, the Isle of Spag? The thing by the Brothers McLeod? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting... That would have been an interesting thing to see on TV, wouldn't it? If that would have been turned into a series. Because that didn't really go by a kind of... A family or, or anything. It was just like a bunch of weirdos. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like... A kind of like League of Gentlemen. It was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's... Again, that's what I am way more inclined to gravitate toward as far as new show ideas and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, And even though it's ultimately not my cup of tea, and it's not adult animation, but it's been embraced by an adult audience you know something like adventure time is at least an alternative take on constructing a universe and maybe there is something to i don't know having children in mind when developing an idea as far as the sort of original thought process goes and then have it sort of organically become something with a you know an older audience but maybe that's I don't know, maybe that could be a sort of like method people could use creatively <laughs> to you know come up with with more adventurous premises for sitcoms. But then also you know why you know why not just have that attitude from the outset? Yeah, it just seems like the the adult animation audience, which should really be more expansive as far as what you can come up with, it just seems to be sort of limiting. Yeah. I think th- I think yeah. three three groups of people have to meet, don't they? Uh, and meet uh, at once. So the creatives have to meet with the um, the people who are going to distribute the thing, and that ultimately has to meet with the audience. But mm-hmm. if the creatives and the the platform meet and and it's the perfect marriage, then it will find its audience. Something like Rick and Morty. Obviously, Adult Swim needed something like Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty as an idea needed something like Adult Swim. And that's gone on to be like a huge success, you know, and, 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 and very well received, like 2D TV and to a certain extent, other, other, other uh, animated shows, The Simpsons, you know. Well, I think also the, the, the kind of pairing of something like Rick and Morty and Adult Swim is one of those sort of blessed unions in a way. When you sort of first mentioned that show to me, I, I didn't realize it was on Adult Swim. And it's sort of interesting how that kind of affects the context of it in a way. And I think that that show seemed very kind of out of left field for what I what sort of considered the main sort of animation lineup now, which is pretty much just shows on Fox. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the and Adult Swim doesn't really have a reputation for high production values. Now, I'm not sure you could call the, the animation in Rick and Morty particularly advanced or the design particularly advanced, but it is a lot more considered than most Adult Swim shows, which are very, very, uh, for the most part, very static. Mm-hmm. And that was a sort of purposeful design choice that, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's the easiest way to make effective cheap animation and have it be dialogue and story driven. But then you occasionally you get ones that just didn't have very good dialogue or story, so they just would not be satisfying television shows. I think it's, uh, was it Chuck Jones who... who, who who turned the phrase illustrated radio. Right. And some some people unashamedly go for that. And if that's what you want to go for, go for it. But as you said, you know, Rick and Morty, whilst the animation isn't exactly mind-blowing, I think the design's good, you know, and it meets it matches the humour well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm totally with you on some of the shows which are just moving mouths. <laughs> 
So here's something for those who are near or in the Loughborough area. There is a free screening of the Oscar-nominated Ernest and Celestine, which, if you can make it, is sure to be worth the journey. There are more details on our events page on squiggly.com, where you can see other events and uh, add your own if you wish. Or you can go to flixflix.org.uk for more info. So for any of you who heard about the film during the uh, the Oscar season and uh, curious to check it out, you can uh, head on down there Thursday the 22nd of May, 7pm at the Cope Auditorium. Meanwhile, back in the world of uh, short filmmaking, rather than episodic television, we have a chat with Eamon O'Neill, who for the last little while has been uh, on board with the lovely folks at Studio AKA, um, people like Phil Hunt and Grant Orchard, obviously a very, very strong reputation for very high quality animation. They do those charming adverts that go, ah, 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 <laughs> which apparently drives them all nuts. The work of uh, Mark Crast. The, um, the Phil Hunt actually came round to my uh, university to do a talk not so long ago, and it was fascinating the way that they operate as a, as a studio and the way that they engage with creatives such as Eamon O'Neill and the way that they say that they have so many people want to be part of it. I think at one point uh, David O'Reilly was a runner. Oh, wow. But then they really wanted him to come back and, and just do David O'Reilly things. But in the in the interim, while they didn't have the work for him, uh, obviously got snapped up. But yeah, the, the, there's still just a room above a <laughs> above a, a record shop in Berwick, I think. It is a great record shop, though. Yeah, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I found Under the Pink, which I've been trying to find on vinyl for eight years. Oh, I like stories with a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was a reissue, so uh, oh. sounds a little better, I suppose, than the original would have. But oh well. I think Eamon O'Neill is kind of cut from a similar cloth, I think. Yeah. They're both very um, contemporary animators. They both are using, you know, effective minimal animation in a way. But that's not sort of the limits of what they can do. I think that um, one of the films that we talked about rather fondly when it was doing the rounds, I'm Fine Thanks. Yeah. That was a real sort of indicator, like, because that was his, his, I think, first film, possibly. Graduation film, maybe? It's the first one that made any dent in anywhere. So it was certainly, uh, it, it kind of uh, stood out. It shone. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. Great timing, real sort of bleakness to it. You know, the sort of elements of like the dark humor of something like, um, not I'm so proud of you, that was Hertzfeld. Uh, what was that big O'Reilly film? Well, it, it, it certainly has a Hertzfeldian kind of vibe to it, I'd say. In places, but there's one film I'm thinking of in particular. Um, I'm, do, I'm thinking of the title, um, but it was the one that really made O'Reilly's name. Oh, right, the okay. The long one. Yeah, hang on, give us a second. External World. That's right, yeah. That, I think, was still very much sort of fresh in the memory of the animation industry and festival goers. And to do a sort of film that kind of, I know, embraced the same kind of elements of, like, sort of, I don't know, glitch core, is that a word? It's certainly something that, that he's... That I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a lot of sort of strong illustration uh, uh, influences on it. The mm-hmm. character design in particular is, is sort of, to me, evocative of, like, sort of the best of, like, 90s illustration. Sort of a Felix Massey quality to some of it as well. The kind of 
the journey of the the main character of I'm Fine Thanks, the doomed nature of his self-destruction. Yeah, it's such a spiral, isn't it? Yeah, I saw it in the same screening as I saw I'm Tom Moody for the first time. And in a weird way, I found them sort of similar in that kind of letting yourself get in the way of yourself. Mm. So obviously not similar on any kind of aesthetic level or tone level, but just about how we can be the person that screws us over more than anyone else. Yeah. Sometimes, Steve, we're our own worst enemy. Like that? <laughs> I made that up. You, you should, I think people should start using that. Yeah, very good. But he's got a new film now. It's called Left. Mm-hmm. It's visually, as you'd kind of come to expect, it's got the, the kind of inventiveness and the, the, the kind of the, the use of colour and character that, that you'd expect from, from Eamon. Mm-hmm. Which... Because it's such a kind of basic structure, and basic not in a bad way, basic in a kind of bold way, uh, mm-hmm. it's open to interpretation a lot. So you see a lot of, you know, you can see yourself in a character or you can see yourself in, in something that's going on in left in particular. It's a, it's a tale about uh, guys going the wrong way, basically. You know, ch- we all have um, childhood friends. You know, one you go one way, they go the other way. Yeah. And some go, some go down a, a bad path. There was a, a Danish film, I think it was Danish, uh, that was released a couple of months ago, uh, Junkyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's slightly similar, you know, the idea that you know one kid ends up being uh, a bit of a, a ne'er do well, and the other one ends up being a bit more settled. And uh, but but in this one, in this one, uh, the character comes back into his into his old into his old life, and it's. This is my own interpretation of the film, but he's alienated from his past, and that offers a nice kind of conflict. I mean, he's also familiar with his with his past and everything, but you can tell that he's above it. He's above everything that's around him, mm-hmm. but still in the same way, kind of respectful. It's a great film, and it is available on on, uh, on Vimeo for people to check out. We actually did an article on it. Was it Laura Beth did a, a great review, a mini review of the film which is uh, worth checking out on the website. In the meantime, let's hear from the fella himself. This is Eamon O'Neill. Can you tell us a little bit about your background growing up in Ireland and how that influenced your creative voice? Well, I grew up in a small fishing town on the southeast coast of Ireland. And at about the age of 10, I met a local artist who brought me on kind of as a student, I guess, quite early on. Uh, every Saturday I used to go to visit him. And we would um, either work in his studio, he was a printmaker, um, and he did a lot of copper etching. So we'd either go to his studio or we'd go out to the rivers or the sea and draw. So I think he was probably like the biggest impact in terms of like where I grew up, because it was like the first time that I'd been exposed to somebody who was making a living working as an artist. But then also he worked commercially doing a lot of ceramics. There's a big pottery in our town in the 60s and 70s. So that was kind of his background. And he showed me a lot of those processes as well. And in terms of, I guess, how I informed my voice, I'm not really sure. Like a lot of my stuff comes from personal experience. So a lot of those experiences will be in this town. And I just try to be honest, I suppose, mm-hmm. with with what I put into my work. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, films like My Day and On the Quiet that were created while studying in Ireland, could you tell us a little bit about 
how the stories were developed and why this form of human nature stories are so close to you as a filmmaker? Well, yeah, so my day was my... I did um, four years of uh, animation in Ireland on my degree at the National Film School. And so my day was my third year film and On the Quiet was my fourth year film. In my first and second year, the work that I was doing was kind of not as personal, but just kind of very... Uh, informed, I guess, by things that I was interested in at the time, like uh, 50s and 60s design, you know, just going through these different phases of things that you liked in college. So I was also trying to, you know, get my head around storytelling. And then as I went into third year, I was about to embark on a new film. Um, And when I pitched it to the course coordinator at the time, she uh, said, well, why are you doing this again you know it's kind of repeating yourself you already know how to do this kind of work and that really stuck with me actually because I knew she had kind of hit the nail on the head I wasn't really pushing myself so that's when I started to go a bit more insular and trying to figure out how to tell more personal stories based on my own experiences so my day was kind of the first of that vein in my work that I was interested in and that just came from kind of a personal experience of traveling to college one day and this guy totally invaded my space and it really really annoyed me for a long time and it kind of stuck with me so when I came back then to have this film to make that was kind of already in my head so it just kind of seemed natural to go that way okay. and use that story. Can you tell us a little bit about how um, moving to the RCA and what your work got from going there? Well all through my degree and when I was working in Ireland I really liked the films that were coming out of the RCA. And I couldn't quite pinpoint what it was that I liked about them. But I also knew through like talking to people who had been there that it was a really good environment to be in. And also they had, they've got like a really big colour library there. And I was really, really interested in trying to uh, use colour more in my work. Because with My Day and On the Quiet, it's very grey, mm-hmm. monotone. So that was, I guess, a big influence. When I got there, was kind of I just threw myself into trying to use colour as much as I could and looking at this colour library. But then also the people who were in my year group, I learned a lot from because at the RCA, they bring people from not just animation, you know. So I think there was 14 or 15 people in my class, but only three or four of us had done animation as our degree. Mm-hmm. So suddenly there's this huge influx of all these different areas, like architecture, you know, textiles, painting, kind of all lumped in together. And it's suddenly your perception or idea of what animation can be or can do becomes a lot broader. Like I suppose prior to that, I thought of it in a very traditional way. Like my course was very traditional. Like everything was, we learned all of our principles on paper and very character-based. So yeah, it really just broadened my understanding of animation, but also allowed me to focus on making more films, which is really what I wanted to do while I was there. I'm Fine Thanks was obviously your film that you made whilst at the RCA. Does it have any basis in reality? Um, So I made I'm Fine Thanks in my first year at the RCA, and... Again, I was trying to draw <laughs> on personal experiences. I always feel a bit wary of saying that, because, especially with that film, because I'm afraid of how people will judge you. But um, I suppose it's based in reality in that I just moved to a new city um, and I'd never really experienced anything like London. Oh, yeah. Like, I'd lived in Dublin, but 
it's not really comparable. You know, there's much more space, there's much more laid back. So I guess I was experiencing or just thinking about like these kind of different um, thoughts that we have, you know, these quite dark thoughts that we all have every day, but we don't really admit to having them and we don't really share them with each other. So I started to think about, well, what would happen if you acted on these thoughts? Not that I wanted to, but just... <laughs> no, no, I, I get that. <laughs> Anytime you go through London, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I think when you're there for a while, obviously it becomes normal. Yeah. But once, if you leave or if you're just coming to it, it's, it can be quite... Overwhelming. Overwhelming, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm also from the country, so I have like a country pace. Yeah. Um, and that pisses off Londoners to no end. Um, your style developed into something very graphic whilst you were at the RCA. Can you give us a little bit of insight into your biggest inspirations? I guess a lot of, lot of my inspirations actually would be in live action mm. in terms of like storytelling. But graphically, there's a painter called Ewan Oglo who I really, really like. He kind of deals a lot with like flat surfaces and some of his paintings almost look geometric. Um how he breaks up the planes. But then I was also introduced to the work of Jason, who's a, I think he's a Norwegian comic artist, and he uses, all of his characters are animals, but how he tells the stories and how he kind of evokes emotion from panel to panel is through very limited movement. Um, so that really appealed to me because he was able to convey a lot just by very subtle head turns. Um, and then there's kind of like obvious people like Chris Ware, different comic book people like that. <laughs> Struggling to think of any more. I guess all the obvious ones, there's so many really to, <laughs> to name. Yeah, well, inspiration comes from everywhere, doesn't it? So It does, yeah. It's, it's, I, I always hate asking that question because it seems so like vague. But <laughs> um, with Left, which was released earlier this month, Mm-hmm. wasn't it oh well I guess we're May now so earlier yeah. last month a few weeks ago I don't know, <laughs> something, <laughs> something. Week. <laughs> it was released sometime recently it's the relationship well from what I gather from it so the relationship between two boys from a familiar background and town who mm-hmm. make friends and stay friends despite maybe each other's best judgments yeah it really spoke to me like I've said like from coming from a country origin and like having that kind of you stay friends with people that you know aren't really necessarily the best people to be around. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the story from your perspective? Um, So it was actually in the year prior to moving to London. Well, actually, just as I moved to London, the incident that takes place at the end of the film happened in our town, and there was a robbery. And um, I kind of vaguely knew some of the people involved just kind of like as a kid but I wouldn't have really hung around with them but um because the town is so small I knew who they were mm-hmm. well everybody did I guess and that was kind of part of the shocking kind of impact of it but um it was that thing of I was leaving this town and then uh, I was just I suppose thinking about how it had changed so much since I was younger and um as you say how you kind of know these people or are friends with them merely as a result of where you live. It's kind of like more geographical than, you know, based on anything else. Mm. So, yeah, it was just kind of like leaving the town and just thinking about all these different 
things and then once I left the town I kind of gained some perspective on it and I decided to kind of dramatize the friendship a bit more like it is based on friendships that I had when I was younger but not necessarily with those people in the town who were involved in that robbery so there's a lot of myself put into it and then also drawing upon these events that have taken place. So this was quite a long project for you wasn't it? Mm. Yeah sometimes it it's hard to remember exactly how long. <laughs> I have written here 13 weeks. So. <laughs> um, um, I think it's a bit longer than that, because it was my whole second year of the RCA. Oh, okay. Which was 12 months, and then... Maybe that's just, like, the actual... The, oh, the animation would have taken about 13 weeks. Yeah, maybe that's what that means. Because I think to colour it alone took about four or five months. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's really crazy. Could you uh, talk us through the process a little bit? Yeah, it's a pretty traditional process. I normally kind of start just by working in notebooks, you know, jotting down different ideas or trying to, like, get some thoughts on paper um, and seeing what jumps out. Like, that could be... I was kind of thinking already about left even before I moved to London. So the whole kind of time I was making I'm fine, thanks, left was somewhere in the back of my mind, gestating... So yeah, working through notebooks, and then the script was like pretty traditional script. So I think I spent about three or four months writing, and then like developing and trying different kind of stylistic things, like little tests and design tests and stuff like that. Because I knew the film was so long, or going to be so long, I was trying to work out like graphically a way to do this, you know, and be really economic about it. So that's what a lot of those early tests were about. So once I kind of arrived at something and the script was starting to take shape, I just started to storyboard very... It's like my storyboard tends to be very loose because I'm not really... Unless it's a commercial project, uh, I don't really have to show very many people. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you don't you know, have to share with a client, so I tend to work very loosely with the storyboards because you're not precious about them then. You know, you can throw them away. You can constantly change stuff. Yeah, they're just for you. Exactly. Um and for anyone else who did have to see them, you know, I would be there to talk them through. So from there then it was just casting, which took a while. And then gradually just kind of starting to animate. And I kind of brought on a team of uh, animators. I put up an ad online and a few people responded. So it was really helpful. Uh, I would prep everything for the animators from like pretty much like had all the keys done. Mm-hmm and had timing and breakdowns ready and notes. So we just sent it back and forth. It was all done online. And then over time, we would just replace the animatic shots with the with the animation. The whole way through was like really about trying to pair things back. Even right up until the day of recording the actors, I was pairing stuff out of the script. Like the initial animatic was 20 minutes long. <laughs> and I remember at one point... A friend came over to stay, and he was looking at and we were all kind of like, "Yeah, reckon you can do that." And he was like, "There's no way I could do it in the end." <laughs> but um, when I had the what I thought, I guess, was the final edit was down to twelve minutes. That was like the finished coloured version. Uh, like five months later, I went back again and took another two minutes out of it. I just needed that kind of perspective on it, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. to remove myself. And then because it was kind of bugging me the whole time that parts weren't playing as I wanted so I went back to it that was the whole process I guess like everything was animated in flash and coloured in flash and I tried to work out a way 
to do very little compositing. Just again, because I was trying to do this mammoth kind of project in a, a year, but it took longer than a year. Always. Excellent. Since graduating, you've worked for some big names, including Cartoon Network. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it to work with those really infamous cartoon characters like Bugs Bunny and the Adventure Time characters in your own style? Uh, it was really, it was kind of the perfect brief, really. So that came out of a very small, short clip that I put online, like seven seconds of animation they had seen. And they particularly liked the way the character broke apart and morphed into another pose. I think that's what caught their eye. And they kind of were interested in how that kind of treatment would work with, you know, the characters from the big Cartoon Network shows. The funny thing was that I had previously worked on Gumball, so it was really nice to go back to these characters, but work in a style that was my own, or I had the freedom to um, move in a different way. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed that project. They were great to work with as well. Totally kind of uh, hands-off and encouraging, you know, to try new things. Maybe about pushing it. Another project of yours I'd like to talk about is the um, animation you did for the NSPCC. Mm-hmm to create Sally's story. Um, Even though it's on like a similar vein to your previous work, uh, did you find the project difficult at all? Um, Not really. Like, I find it really engaging um, because with the NSPCC, they often are working with, well, pretty much always working with the children who've actually gone through these experiences. So it just felt like a really good project to be involved in and I felt like I could try and do something a little bit different with it. It was a challenge not to represent the father in a very monstrous way, you know, I didn't really want to do that. I felt that that would be kind of a more of an obvious route to go then so in the end it almost seemed stronger to remove him completely and it was that absence the absence and not having him there kind of said a lot more than portraying him, you know, in any sort of villainous way. Okay. You were also picked up by Studio AKA. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit like how that happened and what it's like to work with them? So how it happened was while I was um, at the RCA, there was a call for internship applications at the RCA. And I really liked their work since I'd kind of begun animation. So I kind of jumped at the opportunity and just put my stuff in and then they picked me so for the, the summer between first and second year uh, I spent three or four months at working at Studio AK as an intern but I was doing everything really from compositing to pitching on projects and then like throughout second year we just stayed in touch and Philip Hunt who is the creative director there he um, would take a look at left you know early drafts of it um, kind of lots of advice and you know it was just really good to work with so then it just seemed quite natural like when I to go there so like when I graduated they offered me the position and I went for it um so I worked there for pretty much since graduating at the RCA like mainly my so I'm represented there as a director I guess my main kind of job is to pitch on commercial projects as they come in Um, And then when I'm not pitching, I'm either working with another director on the job, and that could be like, you know, designing or animating or storyboarding or compositing or whatever. So most of the directors there are um, 
pretty versatile in what they can do. And it's a very small team of directors, so it's great to be able to show your work to them, you know, and get different kind of uh, feedback from different places. And a lot of them, you know, I looked up to kind of the whole way through college, so it was quite quite hard initially, you know, to be able to, to show them stuff. But, you know, you get used to it and kind of just become friends after a while. So, but yeah, it's an amazing place to work. I recently just moved country, so now I work with them kind of in the same capacity. It just means I'm not at the studio every day. Mm-hmm. I'm pitching here from Ireland, but it's kind of just the same, really. <laughs> Okay. You're also part of the Late Night Work Group and your film for their recent Ghost Stories series um, was very interesting. <laughs> it had a very surreal storyline. Can you tell us a little bit of about your concept for the film and how it came about? Yeah, it was a weird one, actually. Because, uh, <laughs> so interesting. When, when, when we started Late Night Work Club, we knew that we, were making the, that we would be making these shorts, so... I had pretty much just finished Left and that was quite you know, a long process and it was a big narrative to do so I felt like I just kind of wanted to experiment and try something a bit different so essentially I didn't plan or storyboard it at all it was just really coming home in the evenings or the weekend and sitting in front of my computer and drawing and seeing what came out and you know animating and trying different things. So how it would work was I would kind of create a scene and then start something totally new. So that's kind of why the film is made up of all these other segments. And out of working that way, I guess little kind of treads of narratives grew. But it was quite weird because I didn't really know where it was going. And I didn't... When it, so when I finished it, it was kind of like, oh, well, I guess that's it. Because you know? I, I didn't really know what I set out to achieve. So by the time it was complete, it was a surprise to me as well. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of, I guess, answers why that. it's so strange. <laughs> but I've been reading a lot at the time for about the internet and you know its effects on society and about empathy and all these different things. And that was for another project. But I guess you know it couldn't help but filter into what I was doing when they had worked over as well. How did you find time to do post personal around all your other work? Uh, it was really hard. <laughs> it was mainly made um, outside of Studio AK. So, like, when I would come home, there was a couple of times where I worked on it at the studio during downtime or whatever, but mainly it was just, you know, I had a spare room at home and would get home in the evening and work away on it and then put weekends into it as well. So that was it, really. Like, we had, um, or at Studio AK, Dave Prosser, uh, works there as well and we sat together on the same floor and he was also involved in late night work club so in a way it was good because we could kind of encourage each other to keep going <laughs> and uh, you know come in on, on a Monday after a weekend and be like did you get much done yeah no you know whatever so it was definitely having Dave there uh, it, was, <laughs> it was good well, support yeah <laughs> um, as well as all of that you were also asked to do a um, an award for the recent BA awards, weren't you? Mm. I, I can see from your blog that you're sort of, I don't know how often you work in 3D, but that you've started to work in it more, like actual sculpts. Yeah, um, I guess that was just something I 
started to make these little, like after Late Night Work Club, well, while I was making Late Night Work Club, the post-personal film, I was spending all day at the studio on the computer staring at screen, and I'd come home and, you know, still be staring at a screen. So I decided just to kind of try making these little objects out of clay, um, just as a break, really, more than anything else, you know, be constantly staring at a monitor. So when Jane from the British Animation Awards asked uh, me to make an award for them, that kind of seemed like a good route to go then, because I was already enjoying that process, you know, making actual objects. Um, so they were all just made from wood that I cut and um, painted. So it was really simple, but quite fun to do. Yeah, it looks wonderful. So it's one of the more graphic pieces, I believe, from this year. So mm. it went down really well. I mean, it was totally just like DIY, you know. Like the little video that I made for it is a shot in the hallway of our old flat because <laughs> there was no lights in the hall, or there was no windows in the hall. So it was just, you know, the most effective way to make a dark, <laughs> dark room to work in. But yeah, I really enjoyed doing that. Excellent. Um, on that note, do you have anything you're working on at the moment that you can discuss? I've written a new film, which I've been trying to write over the last year or so. Uh, it's kind of in a similar vein to Left, but a bit more... The characters are more mature, more grown up. It's kind of a longer, more ambitious project again. But yeah, at the moment, I'm just kind of constantly rewriting it. Every time I read a version of the script, just... I get more ideas and also just feels like a different person wrote it. <laughs> so, um, will you be doing that in your own time or will you do, be doing that in association with Studio AKA? Or? Uh, no, I don't think it will be with the studio. Uh, I've been thinking about applying for funding for it, but I'm not sure yet. I think it'll either be a funded project or I've kind of written it in such a way that it could be done on a very small budget as well. So. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not promising anything. <laughs> well, that's all my questions, so thank you very much. Thanks very much. So that was Laura Beth talking to Eamon O'Neill. You can find out more about his work at eamononeal.ie. That's O'Neill with two L's and uh, Eamon with two N's and one M. Sometimes people struggle with that. Yeah. The, the double letters. Versus single letters. I'm just trying to make it easy for them. Just go on the website. Just go on squiggly.com, which is easy enough to spell. Uh, find the Amy O'Neill website and just click away from that. We'll do all the work for you. You just sit back. <laughs> Oh, that was another nice rambly podcast. Uh, thank you again to uh, our guests who uh, provided the less rambly, more insightful portions of the uh, of the episode. So thanks to Tim Searle. Keep your eyes open for Warren United Tuesday nights, 10 p.m. on ITV4. If you're curious about it, see which uh, direction it goes. Tim Searle's also working on the new Mr. Bean series, so uh, keep your eyes open for that one too. I have a feeling that's going to be pretty big. Also, thank you to Eamon O'Neill for talking to writer Laura Beth Cowley for this new film, Left. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can do ben at squiggly.co.uk or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, which is at squiggly. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. 
The Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Ben is at Ben L. Mitchell. And don't forget, for all the latest animation-related news, reviews, interviews, and podcasts just like this one, visit squiggly.com. Squiggly.